0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to build habit-forming products. We'll talk about the four-step process to building products that keep users coming back, how tools like the scarcity heuristic can be used to drive intended behaviors, and what the framing effect tells us about the importance of perceived value. You're with us today. Discuss those topics and more is Nir Eyal. Near is the author of the recently released book *Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products*. *Hooked* debuted on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and made several 2014 best-of lists, including being named one of the best business books of the year by Goodreads and the best marketing book of the year by 1-800 CEO Read. Nir is a frequent speaker at industry conferences and Fortune 500 companies. Among the outlets for which he writes often are TechCrunch, Forbes, and Psychology Today. He has co-founded two startups, including AdNectar, which was funded by Kleiner Perkins, and he has an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to the podcast, Neer. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about your book. As I mentioned in the intro, it's called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And for listeners out there that may hear the title and think that it's a guide to some kind of product development black magic, you lay out the difference between a habit and an addiction in the book. So what's the difference between those two?
1: Right. I'm glad you asked because there really is a, a big difference. There's a there's a reason that I did not name the book How to Build Addictive Products because it's <laughs> a big difference between an addiction and a habit. Uh, you know, addictions are these persistent compulsive dependencies on a behavior or substance, and they're always bad, right? They always hurt the user. These are behaviors that people want to stop doing because they're hurting the user, but they, they can't stop, right? They can't, they can't choose to stop doing these behaviors. That, that would be an addiction. Now, a habit, on the other hand, that's something else. habit we have good habits and we have bad habits all habits are are these behaviors done with little or no conscious thought and so the reason I wrote this book first and foremost was to help product makers is to help people out there that are innovators entrepreneurs designers people who are trying to build products to help people live better lives I want to help those people develop the right things sooner by giving them access to the psychology of user behavior. And so I want to help people build healthy habits.
0: Okay, great. So so let me ask you at the four steps of the hook model, because they're they're the basis around uh, which the book is built. Can you walk listeners through the four steps that you've identified as being present in really any product Absolutely. that eventually becomes an ingrained part of, of users' lives? Absolutely.
1: So uh, my my study of habit forming technology kicks off with this look at uh, this pattern that i see repeated time and time again in all sorts of habit-forming products I, I focus mostly on the technology space because i think that's where the greatest innovations of late have come when it comes to the potential of habit-forming products and habit-forming technologies so i asked this fundamental question around how is it that products like facebook and twitter and instagram and pinterest this product that you know, they kind of came out of nowhere and in the span of five to ten years somehow we can't put these products down. Why is that? What are these companies doing so well from a behavioral standpoint that gets people to use them time and time again with little or no conscious thought out of habit? And so the pattern that I uncovered is called the hook model. The hook model has these four basic steps. It starts out with a trigger, then an action, then a reward, and finally an investment. And it's through successive cycles, through these four steps, and I'm happy to go into each one of these uh, a little later, by successive steps through these these uh, phases of the hook model, this is how consumer preferences are changed, this is how tastes are formed, and this is ha- how these habits eventually take hold.
0: Okay, got it. So we'll talk more about the four steps in a little bit, but I want to ask you about a stat that, that you mentioned pretty early in the book, and, and it was something along these lines. That in order for people to switch from one product to another, product B has to be nine times better than the previous one a person was using. And I think you use Google and Bing search as uh as the as the example. So in that context, how do you ever get anyone to switch over to anything?
1: Right, it's a great question. So it's it's part of the double-edged sword that is habit-forming technology, in that. Uh, Part of the economic value of building a habit-forming product is that you erect a moat, right? It becomes very difficult for a competitor to swoop in and take your customer away when your product has formed a habit. Uh, And the example that I give in the book is this competition between Microsoft, Bing, and, and Google, where in the search engine battles, you know, if you, if when I do these surveys of, of people in, in, in my classes, and I ask them, you know, how many of you have searched with Google in the past 24 hours? Almost every hand will go up. And then I ask people in the room, okay, who searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? And so you know, there, there'll be scarcely a hand in the room. Well, why is that? Is that because Google just has a far superior product? Well, no. It turns out that in independent studies, when people compare head-to-head the search results of Google versus Bing and you strip away the branding so people can't tell the difference between the two, then there's a preference split of about 50-50, that people really can't tell the, the search results apart. And yet we use Google habitually with little or no conscious thought. We don't even ask ourselves, might there be a better solution out there? Why? Because Google has formed this habit, in our mind, that whenever I'm uncertain, the solution is to instantly Google. We wouldn't even know if there was a better solution out there, which brings me to the cold, hard fact that when it comes to many technology products out there, the best product doesn't always win. Many times, it's just the product that forms the stickier habit.
0: Okay, so so in that... Uh same vein, I guess, if you are a Microsoft or another company that's looking to compete with the Google, are you better off just creating another product entirely, or is it possible, do you think, to kind of make inroads against somebody who's already well-established in the public's or consumer's mind?
1: Right, so there's a few ways to capture your customer's habits. Uh, And and there's only four basic ways that I know of. The first way is to send the customer through the hook with greater velocity. So if you can send people through those four basic steps I talked about earlier, of trigger, action, reward, investment, faster, if you can increase the velocity of people going through those four steps, that's one one thing you can do. And, And that's typically done by making the action phase significantly easier. So if you can make it easier for people to go from recognized need to reward faster in some way, some kind of innovation that makes it easier, that's the first way you stand a chance of capturing your your competitor's customer habits. The second way is to increase the frequency of going through the hook. So the first one is velocity through the hook. The second is frequency of interacting with the hook in the first place. So, for example, go, uh, if there's a, a new technology that comes about that all of a sudden makes your experience possible throughout people's days, so, for example, the fact now that we have these mobile devices reshuffled the deck to the habit deck, so to speak, that all the previous habits we have uh, had on other platforms now needed to come over to this new interface, this mobile interface. So, for example, with Microsoft uh, Office, which was built for the desktop interface, when the mobile interface came along, and with cloud computing, when that came along, all of a sudden this was a behavior that people could, could do more frequently on their mobile phones. It was built for the mobile interface in large part, so people could start using Google Docs, for example, in this new interface, and that's a big reason why Google is doing so well with Google Docs, uh, at the expense of Microsoft Office. So the first way is greater velocity through the hook. The second way is more frequency of going through the hook. The third way is to make the reward more rewarding. So that critical third step of the hook, if you can make the reward phase better in some way, if you can, uh, if you can make that reward more rewarding. So for example, the, the example I like to give here is what makes Snapchat so, so, so scary to Facebook? Well, the reason that Mark Zuckerberg offered three billion dollars for Snapchat was because he knows that the reward is more rewarding. So, what's interesting about Snapchat, what's special about Snapchat, is that sending someone a message uh, has a certain property to it, and that is that it, the messages explode. Right? When you send someone a message with Snapchat, it disappears. That, that message explodes eventually. So, what does that do to people's propensity to send messages? Well, they send them not only more frequently but they also send them with less discretion. They're more flirty, they're more sexy, they're more funny. And so if you were to receive a message from Snapchat at the exact same time you were to receive a message from Facebook, which one are you more likely to open? Well, I would bet that 10 out of 10 times it's going to be Snapchat because (laughs) the reward is more interesting. It's more rewarding, right? If it's a message from someone you've been flirting with versus a message from your Aunt Bertha, you're going to open that Snapchat message first because the reward is more rewarding. And then finally, the fourth way is easier in. So if you can build a product that gets people onboarded easier, that makes it easier to start using the product in the first place, not necessarily throughout the, the use of the product, but to start using the product in the first place, if there's an easier point of entry, that's your fourth opportunity to wrestle those habits away. And so actually what, what, what uh, Microsoft is doing when it comes to the, 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 the search space is that in many ways they've kind of given up. Right, they're not going head-to-head head anymore with Bing uh, on the desktop. Now they're looking for other ways, other interfaces, to try and, uh, and tackle the habit of, of searching on mobile devices and in games through their Xbox platform. So other places where you may want to search because they understand that tackling uh, the Google search habit head-on is very, very tough.
0: Sure. Okay, so let, let's talk about the first step in the hook model, which is triggers. And there are two types, external and internal. Can you talk a a little bit about the difference between those two?
1: Sure, absolutely. So the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to create an association with an internal trigger. Now, internal triggers are situations, uh, places, people, and most frequently emotions that tell us what to do next. But the information for what to do next with an internal trigger is formed through an association in the user 's mind. It, it, what, what we do next is, is a memory that we have stored to tell us what to do next so for example, uh, when we 're feeling lonely, we instantly check facebook when we 're bored we with little or no conscious thought, we check YouTube or sports scores or uh, or the news right so we look for these these solutions to these painful Uh, these painful emotions, which make up for very frequent internal triggers. So that's the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product, is to attach to one of these internal triggers, these situations, routines, places, people, and emotions. To do that, what habit-forming products have to do at first is to use an external trigger. Now, external triggers are things that tell the user what to do next with some kind of explicit information, right? These are things in our environment that tell us what to do next click here, buy now, play this, tweet this, a friend telling you about this great new app through word of mouth, all examples of external triggers. So these habit-forming products use external triggers at first to get us to go through the hook, but then over time, they don't need these external triggers because we form our own association with these internal triggers in our day-to-day life.
0: Okay, got it. And. And what are some of the ways that product designers can kind of cross that bridge and take an external trigger and turn it into an internal one?
1: Right, so it's, it's not about turning an external trigger into an internal trigger. It's about creating association with an internal trigger. It's okay. So that first successive cycles through the hook, by going trigger, action, reward, investment, trigger, action, reward, investment, time and time again by using the product, by experiencing the product, and passing through the hook, eventually the user begins to form these associations in their mind with these internal triggers so the process of needing to rely on external triggers you know uh, expensive advertising and spammy messaging yes many products rely on that at first but eventually we trigger ourselves Mm -hmm. so that every time we're feeling lonely we do a a particular behavior every time we're bored we do a particular behavior every time we're in a particular place we take that key action and then finally the end result is that the habit of the product is formed.
0: Okay, so let me ask you about typical actions and rewards that might be built into certain products just so people can can kind of have an an understanding of what those steps would be. So in in Facebook, let's say, an action would be a like.
1: (laughs) Actually, that would be the investment. Okay. That would be the investment. The action in Facebook is just opening the app. Okay. So you're feeling kind of lonely, or you've got a few minutes a- at work that you want filled up, or you're maybe you're at a bus station and you're waiting for your ride. So in those few minutes, that painful sensation of boredom, you the action, the simplest behavior in anticipation of a reward is to open the app. Okay. So that's the action phase. The okay. variable reward then scratches the user's itch. So the minute you open Facebook and you start scrolling through your news feed, what happens to your boredom? Well, you're no longer bored a little bit. Your itch is scratched just a little bit. And that reward gives the user what they came for, but with an element of variability. There's some bit of mystery around what you might find every time you open the app. Right? What did people post? What are the comments going to say? How many likes did something get? There's a high degree of variability around what I find every time I interact with a product like Facebook, which brings me then finally to the investment phase, which would be, liking something or commenting on something or posting some kind of content of your own or adding a friend the defining characteristic of the investment phase is something that the user does in anticipation of a future benefit it's not about immediate gratification right you don't get any kind of prizes when you like something or add a friend nothing immediately happens you're doing it to invest in the platform for a future benefit which does two things number one it loads the next trigger. You get every time you post something to Facebook, for example, or you comment on something, you're allowing Facebook to send you a message in the future that brings you back to through the hook once again through an external trigger, right? You comment on something, and then you're notified that somebody else commented on something you commented on, and now you're brought back through the hook once again. And the second thing that investments do is they store value. So the more you use the product, the more you invest in it, the better it becomes, and therefore the harder it is. To
0: stop using the product. Okay, got it. So let me ask you about the reward phase, and there was something you you talk about in the book uh, that's re- in regards to kind of loyalty programs, and then also progress bars and things like that. So mm-hmm. if if you know what I'm talking about, can you can can you go into that a little bit? And if you don't, then then let me know, and I will expand on <laughs> some more until you know what I'm talking yeah. about.
1: I talk about this section on heuristics, and that's in the, in the action phase section. I talk about uh, how there's many different ways to make a behavior more likely to occur by u- increasing user motivation, uh, increasing user ability, and one of the hacks, the cognitive hacks that many companies use, is looking at the psychology of heuristics. Heuristics are these shortcuts that the brain takes in decision making. So all there are all these, these tendencies, these cognitive tendencies that we have that aren't exactly that logical or rational. In fact, people wouldn't be able to articulate that, in fact, change their behaviors, and yet we know through a lot of good science that these, these cognitive heuristics do, in fact, uh, alter our behaviors in weird ways. So, for example, uh, the, the endowed progress effect, which is something that you mentioned around loyalty cards, there's this interesting phenomenon that shows us that when you have a little bit of progress in something, you're more likely to continue and complete it. So, for example, the study that was done, the classic study that was done in this regard, was where they, they went to a car wash, and they gave two sets of car wash patrons these loyalty cards. And one set of loyalty cards had, uh, it was, it was get, do eight car washes, and you'll get the ninth free. The other set of patrons received the loyalty card that was do 10 car washes and get the 11th free. But with this one, the two, two of the, the punches were already punched out. So both cards, both set of patrons required the exact same number of car washes to get the free car washes. Eight car washes to get the free car wash, right? Except for the, the second group had the two already punched out. Well, what they found was in this study that people in that second group where two of these uh, punches were already, or already completed, that group was significantly more likely to finish all of the eight car washes because of this endowed progress effect. They already ha- were part of the way done, and therefore they became more likely to complete the entire uh, process. And, of course, we see a similar mechanism online. If you've been on LinkedIn lately, you know that there's always this progress bar that tells you you're always almost done with your profile. (laughs) Just do a little bit more, and you're going to finish your profile.
0: Yes, I've been been stuck on about 80% on the LinkedIn profile for about three years, it seems like. Exactly. Um, you'll
1: you'll always be at eighty percent, no matter how much you do. <laughs> at least it
0: seems like. Yeah, definitely. But no, I, I experienced that also with PayPal recently, and they w- they wanted me to do something which was link my bank account to my PayPal account so that I could increase the uh, the amount of money I could pull out in a month. So I mean, I guess it works, you know. And it works. It, it works. And it they use it to drive works. behavior for sure. Right. Okay, so so let me ask you about the the quote unquote five wise method that was originally employed at F- at, uh, at Toyota what are the five whys and how can they be employed to help designers and developers build habit forming products Right. so the five
1: whys is a technique to help you understand the the root cause of a situation and i use it to try and figure out the root motivation of why people do what they do so the five whys is a very simple technique where we don't just build for the functional requirements of a product but we dive deeper to understand the psychological requirements of the user and we do that by asking why five times so if you're building a new product and you're trying to figure out why would the user really do this behavior uh, by asking why 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 asking why five times you finally get to the deeper psychology and this will help you reveal the internal triggers that prompt the user to frequent behavior
0: Okay, and and, um, let me ask, let me go back to the heuristics a little bit because I think that's something that's very interesting. The scarcity heuristic is another heuristic that you talk about in the book. Uh, What is that, and what are some common examples that we may be used to seeing? Right, so the scarcity
1: heuristic is another one of these cognitive tricks uh, that that the mind plays on us uh, that we tend to assign more value to things that are scarce even though that's just one criteria, it does not necessarily reflect the the true value of the product. And and the classic study here is around the cookie jar study, where they took two uh, cookie jars, and one cookie jar had eight cookies in it, and the other cookie jar had only two cookies in it. And then they tried to assess which of these cookies were more desirable, which of these two sets of cookies would people pay more for. And it turned out that people were willing to pay more for the cookies in the jar with only two cookies in them, even though they were the exact same cookie. And we do this all the time, right? Anything that seems like it's scarce or about to run out, we assign more value to to that particular product, even though it's one criteria that may or may not actually tell us anything important about that product. We see this all the time on Amazon, right? If you shop on Amazon, there will always be five left in stock, you know, it's meaningless. Of course, they're, they're, they're gonna get more. <laughs> and yet, many times when we buy these things on Amazon, they, they give us this number of how many they have left in stock because they're using this scarcity heuristic. We're afraid that we, they might run out. We think that because something is scarce, it's worth more.
0: Yeah, and, and the framing effect was another one uh, where you talk about people who basically go into an MRI machine and taste wine and, and different parts of their brain light up based on how, how much the wine costs?
1: Right, exactly. This was a great study done by uh, a colleague of mine at Stanford by the name of Baba Schiff, who found that people literally believe and experience wine that they think is more expensive to taste better. Uh, so, so this was a study where they they gave people uh, what they thought was different wines at different price levels, and they observed what was happening in their brains while they were receiving uh, these these samples of wine. Turned out it was the exact same wine every time, and yet people experienced the ninety five dollar bottle of wine as superior. It just they weren't lying; they said it tastes better, but they also their brains experienced it as better because they believed it was more expensive wine, even though it was the exact wine the entire time. So that's an example of, of, of another one of these heuristics. We look at these shortcuts, these cognitive shortcuts to, to change the behavior that, that we do. So does,
0: uh, does that mean if you're selling widgets that you should price your widgets higher than you normally might because people have a higher perceived value of them?
1: Well, it's it's uh, pricing is a very delicate issue. There there aren't any absolute rules when it comes to pricing. It's just one particular technique sure. uh, that, that we see, in one particular tool in our tool in our cognitive toolkit. But we see this all the time, right? We see all sorts of commodity goods that, uh, by by appearing to be more expensive, people assign more value to them, even though many times it's pretty much the same exact good.
0: Right, a, a, a Lexus or a Toyota, I guess, would be a. Uh a classic example, pretty pretty much the same car, but one is a luxury brand and and one is not so much. Right, right. Uh, Okay, so so let me ask, you give an analogy in the book about the difference between products that are vitamins and those that are painkillers. Can you talk about that analogy and what you've come to find about products that are really, truly habit-forming?
1: Sure. So the, the reason I talk about vitamins and painkillers is because I think it's it's a bit of a sacred cow that uh, when, when MBA students learn about what kind of product they should build and when investors talk about what kind of product they're looking to invest in, everybody wants painkillers, right? That's the kind of product we're told we should invest in, that we're told we should build, is a kind of product that people can articulate that they need, right? Painkiller products. Stop the users pain, not the kind of product you want to build, not a vitamin. A vitamin is a nice to have. It's a product that, you know, people don't really need in their life. It's just kind of a a nice to have product. Well, but it turns out that when we talk about many of the products that I mentioned earlier, like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Snapchat, these products, at least when they started, were not painkiller products. Think about it, right? Nobody ever woke up at 2 in the morning 10 years ago and shouted, I need to update my status. (laughs) <laughs> right, that never happened, but it turned out that you know today if Facebook were to shut down and if Mark Zuckerberg sent an email that said, you know what, I've made enough money, it's time to close down Facebook, I'm tired of this, people would have connection fits, right? All of a sudden, that would be a big problem for people. So what happened? How did this vitamin turn into a painkiller? How did this nice-to-have become a must-have? Well, it turned out the answer is habit that over time, as people become habituated to a behavior, as they become reliant on this behavior in their day-to-day lives, it becomes part of the, of the ritual, of their day-to-day behaviors, part uh, once their brain associates the use of the product as a particular uh, salve for their itch, for this internal trigger, it becomes a painkiller. It becomes something that's very, very important in their day-to-day lives. So the lesson here is that by forming habits, you can turn vitamins into painkillers.
0: Okay, let me ask about the, the fog behavior model. It's something you talk about in the book, and it's a very prescriptive way of thinking about driving behaviors.
1: Right. So in the action phase of the hook, I use uh, DJ's work uh, as, a, as a very practical and I think uh, easy-to-understand model for how to uh, figure out why people are or are not doing particular behaviors. That Fogg tells us that for any human behavior, we need three things. We need sufficient motivation, sufficient ability. Ability is how easy or difficult something is. And we need a trigger to be present. So that's, that's the core of, of, of uh, Fogg's work. And so I use that as a model to try and analyze in that critical action phase, uh, why a user may or may not do be doing a particular action that you want them to do.
0: Okay, got it. So near uh, running a little low on time. Um, any any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking to build habit forming products other than uh, buy the book?
1: Well, <laughs> that would be great. I think that you know the book is uh, is a is a how to guide. I tried to make the book very very practical, very action oriented. Uh, I read a lot of business books in my day, and uh, one thing I hated was these you know, highfalutin, lots of storytelling, but without much actionable uh, insights to, to actually use, and that's not the kind of book I wanted to write. So I wrote every chapter in the book with a summary and a do-this-now section. I mean, it literally walks you through step-by-step step what to do in order to build the habit-forming product. And the only other piece of advice I would give is uh, to entrepreneurs out there that are building a product and trying to figure out what they should work on. The most important thing is to make sure that you're working on something that you yourself need, that you yourself are the user of, and that you believe materially improves people's lives. And if you do that, you're in a good moral situation, right? We talked about the potentially uh, negative effects of addictive products. So if you do that, you're in a good moral position, if it's something that you yourself need to use, you're the user and you believe materially improves people's lives. But number two, you also uh, fit the archetype of some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, the people who build products like Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and WhatsApp. All of these people were facilitators, they met this two part test of building products that they believe materially improves people's lives and they themselves were the user.
0: Okay, nice. Well, great advice and a great note to close on. Near, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Near Al, you can visit his website at www.nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R and Far.com. You can learn more about the Hook Model at www.hookmodel.com. And you can follow Near on Twitter at AYAL. At Nir That's at N-I-R-E-Y-A-L. Thanks once again to AYAL for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Tim Hurson on the podcast to talk about the power of productive thinking. We'll be looking at why the way your organization thinks is more important now than ever why the act of thinking can actually be physically demanding, and how to avoid things like monkey mind, gator brain, and the elephant's tether. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by 3Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.